0: Welcome to a slightly unusual edition of the Creation Theatre Podcast, um, which will be the audio from a post-show talk that we held after a production of The Witch of Edmonton. Um, It was a hybrid performance that evening, so we had an in-person audience in Oxford... Um, And we had our international audience online um, and one of our actors live in Oxford. And so after the show, we zoomed in a couple of academics who'd been watching from um, other parts of the UK, uh, along with the show's director and one of our performers, and Lucy from Creation. Um, The first person to speak is Laura, the director, and she um, introduces everyone and tells you what's going on. Um, If you want to see them while you hear them, um, then head to our blog um, where you can watch the recording um, of this post-show talk. Um, otherwise, enjoy.
1: Hi, thank you so much for joining us. We have uh, with us uh, Dr Emma Whipday and Professor Lucy Monroe, who are going to chat with us uh, a little bit about the production of Witch of Edmonton that they've just seen. I'm also uh, sitting next to uh, Lucy Ski and uh, Graham Rose, who uh, has played Old Carter in the production tonight, and I'm uh, Laura Wright. Um, so let, let us begin Um, Emma, Lucy, thank you for coming. Uh, I thought I'd start by asking you what has drawn you and your work to uh, look at The Witch of Edmonton. Uh, What's special about this play? What interests you? Um, Maybe you can kick us off, Lucy.
2: Yeah, so I I first read it as a a master's student um, quite a long time ago, um, alongside other kind of Jacobean kind of witch plays. And one of the things that really struck me about it was it, it's kind of combination of the, the slightly unsettling way that it treats the supernatural and way, and the way that it treats the, the interaction between the supernatural and the lives of the, the community. And then also the, the kind of very matter-of-factness about other aspects of it. And I think it's that combination of the, the kind of horrible and the everyday which to me makes it. It kind of distinctive and, and, and quite powerful.
1: Great. Oh, I'm gonna take take us to you, Emma, but in that in that typical Zoom way, you're on mute just to let you know. Oh yeah, sorry. I also it froze at just that moment. So
3: apologies for the pause there. I'm, I'm back. Um so yeah, I, I really agree with what Lucy was saying about the, the supernatural and the everyday, because the first time I read it, I was also an MA student, but I was reading it rather than alongside other witchcraft plays, I was reading it alongside other domestic tragedies so I was thinking of it in relation to true crime plays depicting murder so the murder plot felt very familiar but then the way that the supernatural plot is treated as a true crime I found just absolutely fascinating the fact that to kind of enter the world of the play you have to think yourself into this world where the stakes are kind of life and death and being executed by the state for your crimes and at the same time they are eternal damnation and giving away your soul and i'd also been fascinated by dr faustus kind of as an a-level student so i i really loved you know devils and and damnation um but that is such a play that was so much such a masculine vision of what having a relationship with the devil could be and such a sort of educated vision of that the idea that you'd literally sign away your soul because you could read and write and I think seeing Elizabeth Sawyer as an illiterate kind of powerless woman who was still able to participate in that world but in a very different way in this sort of weirdly embodied way, this sort of semi-maternal way, this semi-sexualized way, and also this comical way because the dog is simultaneously so threatening and so funny. I think that just fascinated me. Um, and I also just loved the way that the play at the same time as taking seriously that supernatural world completely took seriously the way that the neighborhood and community behavior shaped her decision to engage with that
2: supernatural world and sort of did both at once. And it's really interesting that this play, I think, as Emma's comments are suggesting, and I absolutely agree with everything that Emma was saying as well, um, it's a play that, that seems to take on different aspects depending what you put it alongside. So the most recent teaching of the play that I've done is on a, a second year module, where it's alongside um, A Woman Killed With Kindness, which is a domestic play. It's alongside The Changeling, which is often thought of as a kind of descendant of revenge tragedy, but has very kind of marked domestic kind of elements um and it's alongside plays like the island princess and the renegado which are dealing with with race and travel and and other kind of aspects of identity Uh, and so the witch feminist alongside those kind of becomes in some ways the ways in which the play is interested in sort of outsiders and people who are kind of cast to the margins becomes quite prominent and you can think about it in lots of you can think about it as generic shapes in lots of different ways that it's labeled a tragic comedy when it's first performed, when it's first printed. And it, it sort of is, but it also sort of isn't. And, and students often kind of think of it as a, a tragedy and you sort of have to remind them that not everybody dies in the end, you know. I mean, in the original play, the protagonist of one of the three plots actually comes through relatively unscathed. So it's, yeah, it's a kind of slightly chameleon-like play in, in lots of I
1: Absolutely, and I was very conscious cutting it. Actually, Lucy speaking to that, that I was cutting out what would be considered the comedy plot line, right? Which is Morris dances, and um, you know, sort of uh, much closer to a kind of farce, right? And 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 I was uh, I was aware, yeah, that I was pulling out pulling out what might be the kind of the energetic part of the play, in a way, uh, the foil to the tragedy that happens. Um, yeah, I hope that hope that worked. Um, We're speaking about. Um, I suppose this idea of uh, faith and, and, and really believing in the stakes of this play, you both kind of mentioned that, and it made me think about something Graham said in rehearsal actually, um, when we were chatting. Well, you raised this question too, how do we get our heads around a community where people really believe? where we really, really can explain away the actions of say Frank quite quickly by just saying, must be a witch, must be a devil. Um, how is that to perform, Graham? Because you're, you're right in the thick of that sort of superstition.
4: Well, what, what really fascinated me is how we framed this particular production around a kind of post-war scenario. Mm-hmm. So we set it in a, a vague kind of late 40s period. And so for me, the interesting thing is that spectre of something terrible that has happened the, not necessarily referred to, but uh, something dark, the shadow of which kind of inhabits the landscape of the piece, but also kind of infects the way that people behave and perhaps might be a justification for why they choose not to, to recourse to revenge, which is, which is what I would automatically assume from in my knowledge of, of revenge, Tragedies of of the period, but uh, but but in this Carter and uh, Thorny, are almost ineffective in a way. They choose to to withhold themselves, and that, this really reminded me of of kind of a post war scenario where the need to keep a lid on things and to keep the 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 structure of their their societal fabric intact, but to blame the outsider to project all that. Um, you know that that darkness and that that scapegoating on an outsider and call it the devil or whatever mm. so sorry that's a p- pretty oblique oh. response no no no, own no. Own it was own
1: because own because that's, it's, it was call it the devil that made me intrigued there graham because that's that's one of the big questions as well isn't it of the play i mean one thing by cutting the cuddy bank storyline so in this uh that's a character he can also see the dog, right? So there's a clearer sense, if you have that plot line in, that the dog is kind of tangible and real and other characters can interact with him. But that's not true in this version, actually. It's it's possible to see the dog in various guises, but it's not totally clear how much he exists within and without Sawyer. Um, I wonder, Emma, Lucy, what you make of that, having just seen the play, um, especially in this digital space.
3: I found it really exciting the way that the possibilities of the digital was used because I think that that phrase that Graham just used about keep a lid on it, I felt that really, that the difficulty, the impossibility of keeping the lid, lid on this sort of demonic energy bubbling up really came across in the way that you get to inhabit the dog's perspective, but the dog is also so often kind of overlaid on the screen and omnipresent in all these scenes and kind of lurking behind people. I thought that was actually a really lovely visual way of expressing what's going on in the play text, of the sort of sense that he just keeps bounding up, you know, and there are all these sort of puns and jokes about, you know, you've dogged your own death and in the dog days, and the fact that kind of verbally and visually he, he, he just can't quite be contained. And I felt that, yeah, really, really came across in these kind of attempts of some of the characters to repress
2: everything, but the fact that he just continued to lurk yeah and there's a speech towards the end of the the, the original play that's sort of part of the, the the sort of Cuddy Banks plot line where the dog suggests that he's going to go on to kind of greater and bigger things and he's going to infiltrate the court and he's going to infiltrate the city and things and so yes I, I thought the production kind of captured incredibly well that sense of, of the dog kind of being nowhere and everywhere at the same time and, and the kind of shape shifting and, and the difficulty of kind of pinning him, pinning him down into one form. And I thought the the treatment of his first appearance, the fact that when you're first aware of him, you're inhabiting his perspective. Um, and then it's only at a certain point that you become aware of him as a a more physical kind of presence. Um, you know, I thought that was really powerful, or moments where his where he's kind of there twice. And I think there was a moment um one of the moments where he kind of bears his teeth when he was present as a sort of superimposed image, the close-up of the mouth, but also kind of present sort of as himself on, on, on screen as well. And it did seem to be something that that, that the digital um, medium managed to capture really well, that sense of, of a kind of, um, his, his presence being kind of diffused in some ways, but also being, Concentrated at certain kinds of moments, um, and I, I thought that there were moments where you, your perspective was being kind of dragged into alignment with his, in ways that were, a bit kind of uncomfortable, and and which I you know and, and I enjoyed that kind of discomfort. I think it's a, it's a play that, that enjoys making you feel uncomfortable.
3: Absolutely, and just to, to jump on the, the thing Lucy was saying there about the bearing of the teeth, I also found that so exciting because it had never properly occurred to me the kind of the connection between demonic familiars who suck blood and vampires and the sort of fact that there's a sort of spectrum there, isn't it? There and kind of the, again, with that disconcerting sort of power play versus the semi-slightly sexual, but in a really icky disconcerting way, I felt like that was all, all really coming
2: out just from those fangs. And It was sort of weird and No, just sorry, the, go on, Lucy. Oh, just the 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 capacity of the of the, of the techniques that you're using, particularly the overlays and things, to to make the whole thing feel very tactile, even though what you're doing is is kind of bringing together performers who are in lots of different locations and and who a lot of the time are not able to touch each other. There, there's something very very interestingly kind of odd about that dynamic. I thought and and it's a yeah. play where touching is really important
1: absolutely and 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 it made there's a there's a i was watching it again tonight i was really enjoying there's a there's a moment at the beginning where old thorny and, and frank are talking but not looking at each other and i think that's the sort of thing that makes sense in the the rules of of digital theater such as they are that might look really strange in person if it was being performed you know in a, in a theater space it might it might seem confusing, but actually I think there's a kind of fluidity to digital space that's really nice. You can have this kind of representative gaze, right, where people are different in different scales, different spaces in a way that I think, I don't know, just I'm clearly pretty evangelical about digital theatre, right, but I just think it gives so many options. Um, yeah, so many possibilities.
5: I think it definitely opens up a story like this with a dog. That, absolutely I mean right from the start we were saying not phased at all by doing it digitally that always felt like <laughs> of course we can have a creepy devil dog sure but, yeah <laughs> we can do that but <laughs> on the stage I think that we would have found that really you know we're, sort of the closest analogy I can make is about three four years ago we did Dracula and we made a decision really early on that we were not going to show Dracula because as soon as someone walks on the stage and goes, mm, it like, that's it, shows, <laughs> shows over, no one's scared anymore. So we, you know, it was before we'd fully um, you know, embraced digital in the way we have now, but we did it all with projections. So we had lots of projected blood and bats and shadows and layered sound. And it was the suggestion of the thing you couldn't see. So it was, again, it was a, these sort of, sometimes the frightening things are the teeth Mm. and the close-ups the bit where the eye defy, you know her kind of um just call me witch yeah. eyes come mm. up and that 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 this medium gives a gives a lot more scope to play with mm. so, yeah.
2: there was a production of um witch febrington at the southwark playhouse quite a while back i think um which has one of the most unsettling kind of presentations of the dog that i've seen where he was just a very neat Man, white man with brown hair and a beard, in a black suit, who occasionally moved like a dog, mm. and it was just really unsettling. And there was a moment at the end, you know, when he, he was there in a white suit rather than the black suit. And the um, Southwark Playhouse at that point was in a um, an old building somewhere, um, I think off off Borough High Street, I think somewhere around there. Um, and it had these double doors on one side of the building and he it was December and at one point he just pushed the doors open and there was this rush of cold air into the room which was the most kind of creepy thing but so so simple and 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 your production kind of reminded me of some of those moments you know very very different medium but that capacity to have something which is simultaneously you know it's a man and it's a dog at the same time and it's not a man in a dog suit it's something a bit more a bit more unpleasant than that
3: yeah and I feel like the fact that this dog had a certain amount of you know charm and was talking to us the audience directly and bringing us in and the the relationship with Elizabeth Sawyer was quite warm and playful meant that that shift from the black coat to the white coat and the sudden kind of coldness that because I've I've seen this production twice now and both times that's the bit where I've really gone like (gasps) just just something so disconcerting about the sudden absence of any sort of playfulness or joy or warmth or
1: empathy after that intense relationship. Absolutely. There is something, I mean, one thing that I have love playing with and and, well, it's Ryan's capacity to be playful, I think is what what you're hitting on there, Emma, his kind of natural, um, Kind of energy, I suppose. But the other thing that's been really fun is, and this, you know, uh came out of we we had a couple of kind of uh click moments in the in the show where the dog was kind of able to take control of Zoom. Um and quite late in the day, thanks. I mean, and Lucy was pointing out this, oh, this looks good, let's do more of this. Um, and, and we kind of built in a few more moments. And actually, I think that has ended up giving the dog a kind of strange MC power, which I really like. He's he's sort of completely in control of the of the call in a way that I think speaks to the dog's role in the play in a really, in a really fun way, and Ryan's just run with that.
4: Um, And and Laura wrote the prologue right at the last minute for the first night.
1: (laughs) Poor Ryan, yeah. a
4: a last minute addition.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he got that with very, very little time, bless him. Yeah, um, so I pulled some of that from the Henry Goodcall pamphlet um, and sort of made some tweaks and then put a couple of lines at the end. Um, And yeah, Ryan just ran with that.
4: but it makes complete sense now, I think, in yeah, terms of yeah. this production too absolutely to and,
1: and like he bookends it right yeah. in a way that it, yeah that sort of that was a, a sort of happy accident, I think um, but yeah he he took that in his stride um, well, that's part of the fun of digital theater right that actually quite a lot of the time we're figuring out as we go um I mean, we've, I I've, I've cut the script using uh, Lucy using your Arden edition, right? Um, so that was on the desk in front of me when I did it, but it was in a Google Doc, and we were sort of shifting and changing quite a lot and making little, um, you know, little tweaks to make the setting make sense or, you know, uh, kind of reordering things. So
4: um, It's also really interesting to be able to foreground and background certain characters on on the screen, literally, yeah. and that and, and being able to introduce the dog in a minor capacity, in a a passive capacity, but in a position of authority in the hospital, for example, or or as the justice, to cast the dog as that in that role, but place them, you know, the audience can be privy to to that insider knowledge Mm -hmm. that the other characters are unaware of.
1: Absolutely, and that lucky line that uh, that Anna reads out when she's reading her uh, testimony at the end, uh, published by Authority, which just kind of tied that together really beautifully. Um, and there's a really that's a, there's a really lovely kind of very real moment from Anna at the end of us recording that of her just being annoyed, being frustrated by that text, and, and it was so beautiful. It was just yeah, exactly. That's how that's how I feel too. That's how we all feel hearing this. Um, yeah, it's really nice to see Anna as herself for that moment. I think.
2: No, I really like that. I was going to ask actually whether you know at what point you decided where those insets were going to be. I mean, did they kind of move around? Did you change the order? Did you did you always know, for instance, that that there was going to be one? Um, I think there's one within one of the interactions between Elizabeth and and dog. Mm. For instance, which kind of breaks up one of their interactions and then kind of comes back to it again.
1: Yeah. So I I wanted them to escalate. So I wanted them to start off with, you know, this woman is quite unpleasant and quite rude and and everyone dislikes her into this woman has killed X number of children and, you know, drowned people and set them on fire and things. Um, and then I just try to tie them thematically. Kind of as I could to moments in the play. So, um, you know, if there was a moment about causing pain, uh, so that's when the witch is discovered to have uh, a chest full of hair and, and, and things in her house. Um, and I was trying to put that next to a scene where there was some sort of discussion of sort of physical harm or, or, or torture or that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, and that was that was early on. That was before we started rehearsing, um, and they just seemed to to make a lot of sense. Um, I think, I don't think we moved, I don't think I mo- them at all, actually, in the course of things. Um, yeah, I think they just, they just were where they were. Yeah, I found it very
3: exciting, like kind of very powerful, getting those constant, or, you know, not constant, but regular reminders <sighs> of sort of the stakes of, of these this kind of storytelling and this kind of shared cultural imagination for real women who were killed you know I thought it was actually really helpful to have every time it was sort of tempting to get carried away with the excitement of the the story to have those sort of reminders of the counterbalance of this actually happened to these women
1: Mm -hmm. yeah I mean as we've discussed before Emma I had read your work on domestic tragedy and I've been thinking about what it means to uh look at a play that is that is real in the sense that it is a a real woman it is a real trial it's happening you know within months of the play coming out so it's as you know it's somewhere between news and kind of true crime and entertainment and and all of that swirling around and and i think what the test or at least what i hope they did um was was try and uh keep grounding us in the sense that yeah there was a real woman behind all of this though there was a a human being called Elizabeth Sawyer, who, whatever she did or however she lived, was was executed. Um, and and I hope that sort of stayed at the forefront.
2: And it gives it a it gives it a larger context. Um, and it makes you think. I think particularly when when we get the the extract from Good Cole, you know, it makes us think about the way that the story is being told and and what we're what we get access to how how we can recover these kinds of voices and the problems of of that kind of recovery given that so much of the the material that we have is is shaped by you know the demands of the print marketplace the demands of kind of legal formulae and all those kinds of things
1: absolutely absolutely you know the the testimonies we've got they're third person they're they're these you know They're someone else's words about what happened, which I just thought was fascinating.
4: And invariably a a, a male
2: author.
4: Yeah.
1: And I thought the nice
3: thing about introducing all of them and also moving things around slightly so that Elizabeth Sawyer, we kind of get her final words just after kind of Frank Thorny's big scene. It kind of really drew attention to the way that the play is sort of giving Frank his heroic death. And then what does Sawyer get? She gets, you know, this sort of other people talking about her and judging her. Um, and I, I really like the way that you couldn't ignore that as an audience member because of the way then immediately afterwards you get Good Cole talking, you know, the kind of person who's told Sawyer's story. I, I really like that.
2: And, and yet there's that that possibility that the Good Cole pamphlet does have some things within it that, that Elizabeth Sawyer actually said. And which then kind of make their way into the play I when I lecture on this play with the second years I kind of I as, as talk about collaboration and talk about the fact that when the play was was published in the 1650s it's published as you know um, I'm gonna get the order wrong but it's Decker Ford and Rowley etc mm-hmm. um, and I kind of you know play with the idea that in some sense the etc might be actually with Sawyer because of the way that her voice and her story is actually kind of worked into the the narrative. and And you can't overplay that because the Good Cole pamphlet is what it is, and it's it's obviously shaped by what what Good Cole wants to present. um mm. and he's somebody who publishes you know at least a couple of these these kind of Newgate pamphlets. But at the same time, there is that time kind of tantalizing kind of do we have some of her actual uh, some of her voice here?
1: Oh, that's fascinating, Lucy. And of course, you're right. The main body of it is this Q&A, right, which might just be some of her words or you know, might at least be close to what she what she said. Um, and I was so interested uh, uh, looking at this play in this idea of confession. I hadn't really wrapped my head around how much of the, the last scenes are you know, the dog in white saying you will confess before the end of this. And then, of course, that coming true and then Good Cole sort of saying, you know, her tongue was the mean of her destru- means of her destruction. It's uh, really fascinating. But I hadn't really seen that until we started putting it together in rehearsals and, and talking about it.
2: And there's something about the, the I mean, Sawyer's refusal to, to make a good death, mm. that you know, early modern society would would like people who are condemned, you know, condemned with particular crimes to to confess everything, to reconcile themselves with God, to try and get some kind of, of salvation out of it, and and Sawyer doesn't really do that. I mean, she you know she says there's no damn tempter like the devil. Um, there's a, I think sort of from a 21st century, well certainly sort of 21st century kind of you know feminist reading this. There's a a, a lovely kind of um, refusal to capitulate to to. demands that Sadi has of her but of course maybe in sixteen twenty, that's one of the things that that makes her so ambivalent is the fact that she you know she won't make a good death she won't really kind of confess in a in a um a wholehearted or unresentful way you know she's still full of all those all of those really complicated sets of resentments that she has at the start of the play
3: Yeah, and I feel like she's resisting the, you know, both those expectations of the society around her, that she's also almost resisting the genre of the play that she's in, in that all the other, like, things like Arden of Faversham or the Yorkshire tragedy, they have the big repentance, we're going off to die scenes, and, you know, all these really difficult complex characters who've been so transgressive all the way through like alice arden who's been so determined to kill her husband have their moments of sort of i'm very sorry i repent i'm going to heaven and she just yeah doesn't do it so yeah i agree i find that a really exciting sort of sight of resistance
1: absolutely um i'm, I'm gonna sort of start wrapping things up but i wanted to lucy if you have any any thoughts? Anything you want to uh, to sort of uh, add? I certainly want to add thanks to Emma and Lucy for coming to see the show and for for chatting. Uh,
2: I wanted to ask pass. Graham a question if I could. Please, yes. yeah, of course. I mean, one of the things that really struck me in Laura's adaptation was was the the effect of of, of not having old banks and of combining some of old banks' role in in the play into into Carter. Um, and I just wondered about some of those those decisions around the um. The men and the older men in the play, um, and the ways in which those those characters work. Because you were saying really interesting things earlier about the the relationship between th- old Thorny and Carter at the end. Um, and, and so I just wondered whether there was anything else that 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 you wanted to say about about these characters.
4: Uh, yeah, that might be best Laura's territory. Really, <laughs> yeah. having having made the edit and and once once I. Got absorbed into the into the play. I, it's, it's part of the process, really. You lock into what's on the page rather than what's not on the page. So you, uh, yeah, I'm less familiar with the stuff that's missing and how, how Cuddy Banks has been conflated into this. Um, sorry,
1: yeah. Graham. It just feels like a confession time to say yeah, I made old Carter way nastier than he is in the <laughs>
2: original. I'm sorry. And I was really
1: interested <laughs> in
2: that mess, and I was I was kind of wondering kind of how. You know because because what you what you end up with is this really complicated figure. Whereas in the original play, Carter's a bit more um not one dimensional precisely, but he's he's far less complicated. Where whereas here he's the loving father and and the and the man who's prepared to to forgive his murderous son in law, but he's also the man who's persecuting um Elizabeth Sawyer.
1: And as you'll, you'll know all too well, Lucy, I did the same uh, with Kate Carter, who got quite a lot of yeah, nasty yeah. lines. She has, yeah. right? And, and,
2: I, and I found that really exciting, you know, the, those, the, the effects that those kind of um, textual changes were having. Um, and I mean, Grant can speak to...
1: Sorry, no, go on. I was just going to say, Grant can also really speak to this, because my, my practice of doing this was cutting Duchess of Malfoy for creation last year's. Yeah. Um, When Graham was part of the rep company and and the task there was, okay, we have uh, X number of actors. How are we going to kind of figure that out? And so in some ways I'm I'm used to saying, okay, well, you know, if I've got six, six bodies, what can I do with that? And who who needs to go and who can be kind of merged together? Um, So yeah, Graham's digital experience of a rep company, I suppose, also kind of speaks to this, the need to make the stories tighter. um, Mm -hmm. And I guess, yeah, Put, put lines we don't want to lose into the mouths of different characters and then handle the knock-on effect of that and how that does change the characterisation and does change the plot. Mm.
4: And that does feel exciting from a performer's point of view. And, and with, with Old Carter, it felt like there is, there's lots a wealth of good material, but also some holes, mm. some, some strange leaps to make and, and different things to reconcile the relationship with the daughters and, and how that resolves and um, other you know questions pop up about about the world that they inhabit and, and, and that peculiar relationship with Thorny mm. where there's a deal being brokered <laughs> which is about the, the longevity of the, the husbandry of the village if you like or the they town. They feel
5: very parish council
2: don't
4: they?
5: It's, it <laughs> is it's very. very
2: very suddenly, when i was listening to the the you know the dialogue between thorny and and, and frank when he's saying you know if, if you don't make this marriage i'm gonna have to sell my land and i suddenly thought well actually yeah i mean this is this is the land that would be frank's but if old thorny sells it then there's there's no longer any inheritance for him so yeah that sense of of what's happening to the land and what's happening to property
4: yeah, the bigger, bigger questions about sustainability of the life in this, in this town, yeah. when, when, with a need to kind of protect what it, what is inside it. And Frank in a way is, is a, is a natural threat because he's, yeah, he, he, he transgresses. <laughs> but there's this, there's this kind of vain kind of belief that he's, he's the future still,
5: yeah.
3: Absolutely. And I thought the decision to, to cut Sir, Sir Arthur and take him out was really interesting because of the way suddenly there's not this other potential father to the child. There's not this sense of the, the class dynamics in terms of who is really the villain. It kind of made Frank, it, it kind of, yeah, really it reinforced how it was his choices, his decisions to preserve his future and, and that exactly that kind of yeah, land inheritance that complicated everything. And I thought that was like the choice to, to combine old banks and old Carter. They all sort of really put emphasis on this particular small community of people and how they are the ones in trying to protect themselves and keep, keep their kind of community going. They are kind of hurting and scapegoating and murdering these different women to sort of, and and that includes the women who are participating in it in order to to push these other women out. Um, so yeah, I
2: thought that was fascinating. Felt really interesting in in the late 40s kind of setting that you used as well. That you know, it sort of makes you think about that post war moment when there are certain kinds of questions about what happens to the land and what happens to property. Um, and I mean, sort of the rural, rural England is changing quite rapidly in that period. Um, and so the play's kind of combination of, of sort of, you know, it's in its own moment. It's sort of nostalgic in some ways. It's it's deeply interested in community and invested in community, but also quite sceptical about community um, and about what happens when you're on the wrong side of community. And, and those things do feel quite powerful in a, in a, a late 40s sort of context, I think.
1: I mean, absolutely, Lucy, we were talking a bit about how it's all about family and it's all about legacy, and yet they're all so fractured, you know, what where are the mothers of these families, you know, where are the other children, there's there's a sort of abridged future, right, where it it could be frank, but if it's not frank, then who else actually is there, you know, around in this community, the other sort of characters we put in anyway are, you know, I think of um, the Radcliffs, right, mm-hmm. everyone is kind of of, a, of an earlier generation and that it's this sense that, you know, uh, whatever is young and, and, and vital and, and alive, but Edmonton isn't really there anymore, it's something we were sort of playing with. Um, um, yeah. I think it's time Talk, to wrap no, up. I know. I know. I know but I'm, so I'm, many
5: more things. I'm
1: so conscious Graham's just really, on a full yes, show and maybe needs like, to go and, yeah, you know, have yeah, a, co- have a cup of yeah. coffee. Um, but yeah. thank you so much for, for joining us and for chatting to us tonight um, and, and for seeing the show. We, we so appreciate it. Um, oh, thank yeah. you. It's been mm-hmm. such a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Creation Theatre podcast. You can find more episodes and all the latest creation news at creationtheatre.co.uk. <music>